Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. The Peter B. Collins Show is supported by listeners like your pronouncer told you, and I'm grateful to Deborah Gordon, Dora Rosen, and Linda Gray, our sponsors for today's podcast. They signed up for a voluntary subscription. You can do it, too, if you're in a position to help. Just log on to PeterBCollins.com. There's a tab on the right-hand side. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. I believe we're listening to Weird Al Yankovic. And that's probably the weirdest introduction that Stephen Pease has gotten. He is the author of a lengthy, detailed book called The Golden Age of Jewish Achievement, subtitled The Compendium of a Culture of People and Their Stunning Performance. Stephen L. Pease, P-E-A-S-E. Welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter, uh, hello, and thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, I'm sure you get this question a lot uh, as probably the initial one, so I won't disappoint you. But uh, you're not Jewish, and why are you compiling this very interesting uh, uh, collection of information about Jewish achievement? Well, Spokane, where I grew up, wasn't exactly a, a yeshiva center. It wasn't a center of a lot of Jews. But I had Jewish friends when I was in grade school and high school and college. Probably the biggest time, however, was uh, 1972, 1978. I lived in Miami, Florida. Mm. I worked in a Jewish company, or at least a company that was was founded by a Jew. I had Jewish direct reports. The industry was all Jews. We did acquisitions of Jewish competitors. I used an attorney with a major law firm in New York at the time. Larry King was a big radio star in Miami then. Absolutely. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it it was interesting because I had just, I, I had come out of business school. I spent three years as a management consultant, which is what everybody did in the late 60s and early 70s, and then headed up corporate planning for a Fortune 500 company, all these staff things. And I wanted to run a company. Mm-hmm. And in Miami was this small publicly traded company doing real estate information, tax maps, appraisers, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And um, Dick First taught me more in the time I was with him than I learned at Harvard in that two-year period. He was a smart, tough entrepreneur a very good salesman, Mm -hmm. and what the business did was to reproduce the tax roll and the tax maps, and we sold it by aggressive one-call-close Jewish salesmen, for the most part, Mm -hmm. who would arrive in a broker's office, get past... Let's just parse this a little bit. Aggressive one-call-close. That's a boiler room. Aggressive. It means that you're able to (laughs) walk into a broker's office, get past the receptionist, because her job is to keep you from getting to the broker, get into the broker's office with a set of books under your arm, Mm -hmm. You're going to lease them. You're not going to sell them. They're going to cost that broker about a thousand bucks. 
and you've got to walk out with those books in his hands, your check in your hands, and you move on, and a year later you're going to come back and do the same thing. Uh-huh. I mean, it's a real talent for, for salesmen to do that. Yeah. I was 29 years old. I was the heir apparent, and you can imagine the fun those salesmen had with me. Mm-hmm. I'd go out on the road to learn, and they would put me in the most difficult circumstances and then smile and giggle when uh-huh. I would screw them up in one way or another. Uh-huh. But that six years really gave me a, a remarkable appreciation about this group of people. Um, yeah, still in my in uh, Los Angeles, one of the companies that we acquired, the only guy I know who sold his company to the same buyer three times in his career, and I bought it once. David Nitka, um, his parents immigrated to Palestine in 1880 from Poland. He grew up, he fought in the Haganah in the War of Independence, came to the United States after the war because there weren't very many schools in Israel where you get an advanced degree, and he met a beautiful young Hungarian Jewish girl and she was staying in the United States, so so was he. Mm-hmm. Well, he's now been a friend for more than 40 years, and the guy who was at Skadden Arps, who was my attorney, is also a friend for, for more than 40 years, and he lives in Tiburon mm-hmm. these days. You, you, when you're around this group of people that are so alive and so vital and they're, they're doing things, you develop this sense of respect and appreciation and yeah. friendship. Yeah. And I always thought, while I lived in Florida, particularly in the late 60s, that if I could get somebody to give me a list of the 100 most important physicists, the 100 most important musicians, the 100 most important conductors, I would discover that a disproportionate number of them were Jewish. But in those years, I had to, <laughs> I had to put bread on the table. Mm-hmm. I had a career. I couldn't very well take the time. And even if I had the lists, and I conceived of ways I could ask people to give me these lists, I would have had a very, very difficult time identifying who amongst them were Jewish. I mean, mm-hmm. some are obvious because they're very public, but right. m- many are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, I went now on. did you ever, uh, uh, are you familiar with the Book of Lists series? Yeah, I, I've... Published I've, by uh, David Wallachinsky. Uh, these are Irving Wallace's children. Mm-hmm. And uh, his sister kept the Wallace name, Amy Wallace, and she lives or did live in Berkeley. Ah, mm-hmm. And I loved those books. Oh. They started publishing them in the 70s. Oh. And it was just, uh, you know, a list of this, a list of that, yep. but fascinating yeah. to read. 100 most influential people of all time, mm-hmm. all these lists. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, pursued the career. And uh, I've pursued a career mostly of doing turnarounds and doing venture capital, which means that I had all the autonomy in the world to decide what I was going to do and when I would do it and so on. In 2002, my mother came down with what ultimately was diagnosed as Alzheimer's. And when she did, it meant that I couldn't take on a full-time assignment because I had to be able to get on a plane and go to Spokane and deal with whatever emergency or problem arose. Mm Mm-hmm. And so in my spare time, I started digging into this question of, okay, let, let me go find these lists, Mo- Hollywood movie directors, uh, you know, you name it. And at the time, what I didn't really appreciate till I started digging was you could now, you could begin to identify who on those lists were Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody asked me at an event I was at the other night, what do you mean by that? What, what do we be able to find? Well, small example. Today, because I get the New York Times delivered at my front porch, um, if I go online to the New York Times, I can look at every New York Times dating back to like 1860. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was interested in um, the Strauss family, you know, the, the Strausses of Macy's, uh, I could look at the obituary of Strauss who went down the Titanic. And not only could I find out, the, you know, who he gave his money to, I could find out when he got married, mm-hmm. what rabbi married them. Mm-hmm. So a little digging in a place like that or Guidestar. Guidestar is the public um, 
issuance of all of the Form 990s, which is the equivalent of a 1040, yeah, for right. every nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, a small example, Dan Snyder owns the Washington Redskins. Yeah. Um, not, not prominent as a Jew and not widely known to be Jewish, but when you look at the 990 for his foundation and his sister's foundation and discover where their money goes, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you get some corroborating evidence. So, so... One, I had the time in 2002 to begin to get the lists, and the lists were prolific. You could find who who competed in the 1896 Olympics on the fencing team. You can yeah. find it now. Mm-hmm. And you could also do homework on who amongst those lists might be Jewish. And as I did it, I was fascinated because while I thought that they would be disproportionate high achievers, I would have never believed when I started this what I found. Mm-hmm. You know, 23% of the Nobel Prizes, 51% of the Pulitzer Prizes, and so on. So I did a little spreadsheet, and I showed it to a friend of mine who lives in Sonoma, and I didn't know it, but he knew Rabbi Harold Kushner, and he sent it along to Kushner. And Kushner became intrigued with me doing it. He was intrigued with just the fact of it being done, but also with the fact that I wasn't Jewish. And he tried to get his publisher to publish it, and he tried to get his agent to be my agent, and they both said, thanks, but no thanks, something mm-hmm. that we can get into a little bit later. But there was no way they were going to touch it. They said... Uh, you know, maybe a nice magazine article, but they just weren't about to have it be a book. But and, and is, was there any prejudice there? Was it because you're not Jewish? N- well, I think for some for some Jews, there's a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the much more important reason is fear. Uh, 4,000 years of history have taught the Jews one thing, and that is keep your heads down. Uh, because when things are good, when everything is going fine... You're tolerated, you're invited, uh, people are warm and friendly. Germany was the most hospitable place between roughly 1870 and 1925. But when t- things go bad, you are the most likely scapegoat. Yeah. And so this book, even if it had been written by a Jew, and it was, it's unlikely that it would have been, um, is worrisome to some Jews because it puts such a spotlight on this astonishing performance, and they're afraid it's going to have, have a backlash. I mean, I had a meeting with a very prominent, important a Jewish figure in Southern California, and he said, look, Steve, at the core, Christianity and Islam are anti-Semitic, and there's nothing in the world you can do about it, and I think you're a great guy, and if you come to L.A., let me know, mm-hmm. but I'm we'll worried nosh. about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'll even tell people to go hear you speak. Uh-huh. But in the end, anti-Semitism is a fact of Jewish life, yeah. and uh, th- that's the reason, that's the biggest single reason there's concern about the book. And of course, my answer is this book is intended to do exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's intended to say, look at, look at this performance. Um, look at the cultural values behind it. Um, if this was a drug, we would benchmark it. Uh, if it was a factory process, we would benchmark it. We would go in to try to understand how do you get out of that circumstance such a, a, an astonishing performance because there may be lessons to be learned. And my mm-hmm. view is there are. Well, Steve, start with telling me what stereotypes were broken down through this exhaustive research you did about Jewish achievement? Well, you know, as, as a guy who was positively inclined towards Jews, I didn't have an awful lot of particular stereotypes. Although, I, I, for example, I, what I didn't expect was that they would be such remarkable high-technology entrepreneurs. I mean, I, I knew the rag trade. I knew mm-hmm. Hollywood. I knew some of these stories. But until I got into it, I didn't really appreciate that they, in many high-technology domains they are the leading entrepreneurs. I mean, you can go to Andy Grove, who was one of the four original uh, partners in Intel. But if you look at the history of the company, the guy who really made the culture, the guy who really made it work was Andy Grove. Mm -hmm. And he's a guy who got an advanced degree, I think at NYU in chemical engineering, there's a PhD, 
Les Vadez, his number two guy, the number four employee that was hired, had a degree from McGill. Um, Jews, because of their interest in education and their interest in abstract thinking, tend to go on and get higher degrees. They're twice as likely to graduate from college and about three times more likely to have an advanced degree as the average American is. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, a companion book, Dan Senor's Startup Nation, tells the story of what's happened in the last 20 years in Israel. And it's simply astonishing that this group of people go for their education so much and they do so much in high technology that today Israel is either the first or second most important entrepreneurial place on the planet, mostly in high technology. Mm -hmm. Now, what about some of the cultural attributes that really drive people? And and driven is a term that applies to a lot of Jewish people I know. Mm -hmm. And they blame their moms. Uh, You know, she made me do it. Uh, but but there really are some uh, cultural um, uh, characteristics mm-hmm. that are unique to uh, the Jewish culture, and I, I say that more as a cultural issue than a religious one, mm-hmm. um, but where they do um, pass along a lot to their children, including a lot of pressure to succeed. Uh, I know a lot of, uh, of uh, Jewish guys whose dads were doctors, and they had to be a doctor. Uh, they uh, they didn't have a choice. And Dr. Stephen A. Gross is a guy I went to uh, mm-hmm. undergraduate school with, and he was struggling with that uh, through college, that sure. he wanted to do something else, but his parents had decided that this is what Stephen is going to be. Absolutely. I mean, the, the parents have incredibly high expectations and are willing to commit whatever time it takes them to help that kid on his way but it's not a, uh, you know, we want the best for you, warm hugs and kisses, and now decide what you want to do and go on about your life. The expectations are, in fact, very high. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, an illustration, a related illustration, there are people who believe that the Nobel Prize phenomenon, a lot of Jews getting Nobels, was simply a, a second-generation phenomenon, that, that people were, were compensating for the fact that their parents were illiterate. But in fact, the Jewish culture, amongst the two million Jews who came here from the Pale, were all being pushed to go on to college. When, they, when many of them arrived, they arrived with no high school education. Many of them were illiterate. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. And yet within one generation, they were more than 20% of the student body at Harvard. They were 40% at Columbia. They were 80% at Hunter College. Their parents, along with the entire Jewish milieu, the forward, the, the predominant, then predominant newspaper of Judaism, was pushing them to go to school, mm-hmm. go to college, get out and pursue a career. You know, they're very family-oriented. Friday night is Shalom Shabbat. You're home in a family enterprise, and there's a lot of warmth there, but there's a lot of demands. You have to mm-hmm. deliver. And, you know, they, they, they've grown up where survival has been hard for 2,000 years. Now, Steve, uh, you have a fascinating table in the front of the book here, and you just mentioned <clears throat> the Nobel Prize mm-hmm. um, and the high proportion of Jews who have won it. Let's start with physics here. So you say... Uh, total recipients since the prize started, 181. Then you have projected Jewish recipients at only 0.4%, yet the actual rate is 27%. A total number of uh, uh, 48 mm-hmm. uh, out of the 181 are Jewish right. in the physics category That's alone. Right. Yep. So what does this mean here about the um, the projected versus the actual? What, what was that based on? Well, if you took a room of a thousand people and those thousand people were selected to be representative of the world's population out of that thousand people two would be jewish two tenths of one percent 
Now, if you did the same thing in the United States, you'd get 20. Two percent would be Jewish. The Nobel Prizes are international. Mm -hmm. They are not picked by Jews. They are picked by Swedes and Norwegians. It's been around since 1901. It, it began about the time of the, of the practical beginning of the Golden Age, or at least the, the late middle era of the Golden Age. And so when you look at something like physics and you say, well, given their population in the world and given mm-hmm. the number of Nobels that have been awarded, they should have only picked up, what was it, 0.4? They should have picked up fewer, right. fewer than one of the no, no, those Nobel Prizes uh-huh. should have gone to them. And in fact, an astonishing number went. I mean, I, I use that example that since 1901, when the Nobels began, Nobels began in all categories, they've won 23% of the Nobels, even though they are two-tenths of 1%. Um, you, you can't believe it. What's even, to me, more interesting is that after the Holocaust, after World War II, the rate of earning Nobels has actually increased. That 23% that they have since 1901 has been 27% since 1945. Hmm. So they have continued to accelerate the rate at which they're having this, this astonishing secular performance. And, uh, for example, Nobel Prize for Economics, uh, Paul Krugman, uh, <laughs> added to the, the database here. <laughs> yes, much to my chagrin. <laughs> 36% uh, of uh, Jews as a percent of all recipients. Absolutely. And if you look at the John Bates Clark Medal, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the precursor to getting the Nobel Prize. It, it 67%. Tend, 67%. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, and, and Krugman has won both, as did uh, a whole host, Larry Summers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's astonishing, the performance, particularly in economics. The, right. I think I've figured that the Fed has been chaired by a Jew for something like 35, 36% of the time that the Fed has had a chair. 29% is the, exactly. the raw number. And, there, of course, yeah. with each passing year, Bernanke makes the percentage go higher. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there, there's the flip side of this in terms of perceptions. Mm-hmm. And let me just use the Federal Reserve Chairman. There are a lot of people who uh, demonize the Fed and they think that it's part of uh, an evil, you know, new world yeah. order. And it also, in extreme uh, uh, biases or prejudices, leads people to conclude that Jews control the money. Yeah. And uh, when we look at uh, the, uh, let me find banking here. Um, is it, oh, well, here's Fortune 500 CEOs, uh, CEOs of major corporations in 1997, 22%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there is a perception among people who uh, are not Jewish and maybe have uh, bias or even deep-seated anti-Semitism mm-hmm. that the statistics that you're producing here confirm their, uh, their bias or, or their, uh, uh, you know, hate. It, it does fuel uh, the kinds of extremism where they say, you know, oh, well, you know, Jews control the media. Jews control the money in this country. They own all the real estate. And, and of course, my answer is that that's a, that, that may be an understandable interpretation of what I've got, but it misses the point. It misses the point that this is a meritocracy. This is not a conspiracy. The whole elders of Zion protocol is garbage. Every allegation of anti-Semitism that I've ever explored is false. It's completely false. And when I look at the performance here, what I have to say is, wow, I'd like a little of that juice, too. (laughs) And I do believe that everybody can get a little bit of that juice, but you have to first understand why. And that's what this book is about, is saying, look at this phenomenon, because it is just remarkable. And I think achievement matters. Uh, It got us out of the caves. When I was a kid in Spokane, you couldn't go into a public swimming pool in the summertime because polio was rampant. Everybody worried about living the rest of their life in an iron lung. And two Jews 
were the guys who solved the polio crisis. They came up with a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, they were from my hometown of Cincinnati. Oh, were they really? Salk, Salk and, Sabin. and Sabin. And neither one of them got the Nobel Prize for yeah. having done that. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonas, I, Jonas Salk. Jonas Salk, and I think it's Albert Sabin. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I think achievement matters. I think people who care, people who work hard, people who contribute are what make the world advance, and you know they're going to solve global warming if, in fact, it's a problem. So we need to encourage achievement. I'm, mm-hmm. in a, I'm in a town right now where fewer and fewer of our kids are getting out of high school. The ones who get out of high school are not going to college. The ones who do to go, go to college are not graduating. I'm worried about the future. And when I look at this kind of a performance and I look at the culture that encourages it, for me, I'd like to encourage more of it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have more of our kids go through school, get a good education, care about getting a good education, get an advanced degree, become entrepreneurial, start a business, or even, as Jews often have, get involved in some kind of a political action where they really care. Um, so without uh, urging people to convert, uh, what are the attributes or characteristics <clears throat> that others can draw on, regardless of their own uh, cultural identity or religious persuasion? Sure. Well, and, I, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us back a half a step and talk about education, because if I could only talk about one, mm-hmm. that would be it. Um, and, and, and understand my view of why this occurred is not because of the religion. Um, they had, the Jews probably uh, 600 B.C. had taken most of Deuteronomy and most of the Torah and begun to reduce it to writing. But they had never put the whole thing together. They had never canonized what they call the Tanakh and what you and I call the Old Testament. Um, and they had a thing called the oral tradition. The oral tradition was the oral law, supposedly everything that Moses was told up on Mount Sinai by God that didn't get written into the Torah, but were all the practical you know, rules for the road, what you're going to live by. Um, the Jews and the Romans got into a hell of a fight roughly from about 60 A.D. until about 165 A.D., and during those wars, a million Jews were killed by the Romans. And when it was all over, the Romans dispersed most of the Jews out of Palestine all over the world, and they knew they were going to live as tiny minorities every place that they went. They had already lost the first 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Assyrians had conquered them at seven, roughly 750 B.C. Those ten tribes had disappeared forever. So the rabbinic Judaism, which took over during this era, realized that if their population was going to be dispersed, they were going to have to have some way to keep the tribe, the religion, and the culture alive. And the way they chose to do that was to put it all in writing. They, took, they canonized the entire Tanakh, and they took the oral law, and they put the oral law in writing. And, of course, today we call that the Talmud. Now, it does no good to have that done if people can't read it and people can't discuss it and can't debate it. And so they did this revolutionary thing that no other tribe in the history of the world had done. They made education mandatory. So in 1000 A.D., Maimonides, great Jewish philosopher, is saying any family that does not educate their kids, any town that does not educate every kid in in the community should be banished. Um, They made education mandatory, and they did that Again, not because the religion demanded it, but because circumstances demanded it. So this is a case of a cultural value that Jews have cherished for 2,000 years that arose partly out of the religion, but also out of the culture. And today, I think it's, it's one of the most important aspects of culture. There's no reason that more kids can't get a better education. And the United States provides that opportunity, but you have to treasure it. It has to be important to you. You have to go for it. The parents have to care, and so do the kids. So... 
That's one example. Mm-hmm. I'll give you another example. Um, in, in my experience, Jews believe that it isn't so much an article of faith that matters. It isn't that if you believe one particular thing, you've got it made. You're in heaven. Forget about it. You're set. Um, Jews also don't believe that life is a circle, that, you know, you're just going to be reincarnated in an mm-hmm. endless cycle. They don't believe in submission. What they believe is it's what you do in this life that matters. And the time that you've got on this earth, it's your job to perform and for you to get things done. I think that's an interesting cultural value that they've always had. Um, they believe in rationality. Um, small, two small examples. They created the problem of usury. They were initially, before they began to become educated, a nation of farmers. And when one farmer would fall on hard times and his acquaintance loaned him money, they didn't believe you should charge interest for it. And they put that into the Torah and they put that into the Talmud. But as they no longer were farmers in the 600, 700 AD and they became merchants and they're merchants on an international scale, Mm -hmm. they could not function that way. First, they rationalized a way to loan money for interest to non-Jews, and later they found a way to loan money to Jews for interest, and they would, they would reflect this in the Talmud. The Talmud, in some ways, is a... I'm pro- sorry, it's leaf blower day here. I, I don't know how much people can hear that, but it's a little distracting. Go ahead. <laughs> um, in any case, they would use the Talmud, then, as a device for, for rationalizing their thinking, their philosophy, and their religion based on new circumstances. So over time, they managed to solve, to create the problem of usury and solve the problem of usury. And I don't have to tell most people, Christians didn't resolve this thing until about the time of the Renaissance. It took mm-hmm. about 1500 AD before we Christians found a way to deal with it. And in many parts of Islam today, it's still not really dealt with. That's they, right. They create a fiction of a partnership. And mm-hmm. by being in the partnership, you somehow can pay the money to the guy who loaned you the money in the first mm-hmm. place. So, but Jews did that. Oh, Jews also had a, um, a, a practice in which every seventh year you had to forgive all the debts. Somebody owed you money at the seventh year, you had to forgive them. That was another one that they solved. So there's always this kind of rationality. The whole issue of the Talmud, all of this debate is always about, I got a problem. How am I going to deal with it? And they become very intellectual and very debating mm-hmm. in how they get that done. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that I think drives them, and their word is tikkun olam. Um, tikkun olam is the way in which the notion of being chosen, in my view, has evolved over a couple thousand years, but particularly in the last 200 years. If you believed you were chosen, um, at some level it meant that you were, you were sorted out by God to be, be special and he was going to treat you special and everything was going to be wonderful because you were chosen and nobody else was. Tikkun Olam has changed that, particularly since maybe the 1400s. Tikkun Olam said, in essence, in a kind of an interesting notion, when God made the world, he screwed up. It's broken. The, the, the shards, this beautiful crystal that was to represent the world, those shards got dropped and got broken. And so God created a broken world. And the notion of being chosen wasn't that you're special and you're going to be treated as though you're special as it was that you're chosen and your job is to help heal a broken world. Mm-hmm. And it, it allows the notion of being chosen to function without sounding like you're egotistic. Instead, it means that you have a duty. And in this world, tikkun olam, in my view, is a very important reason that Jews are very socially active and social activists. Almost any major social activist cause, even you know, the NAACP, was created by Jews and run by Jews for the first 50 years or so of its existence. 
if you look at the kids who uh, were killed in Mississippi during the voting rights matter, Mm -hmm. there were three kids in that car, and two of the three were Jewish. The Chicago 7. I mean, I Noam Chomsky. You know, mm-hmm. you can't get into the West Bank this morning. <laughs> yep. um, you know, but that's the nature. I mean, there's this sense, this sense of, a, of a duty, an obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting. I mentioned Cincinnati, where I grew up, which is the uh, seat of Reform Judaism. And I was raised a Catholic. And uh, as one of my assignments in theology class, I had to write a report mm-hmm. about uh, Hebrew Union College and the Reform Movement. And I, I learned a lot from that, and, and I, I appreciate it. And one of the things that immediately came to mind was that I was being told as a Catholic that I could get into heaven and that we had an exclusive on that. Mm-hmm. And I never believed that, and I, I found it very off-putting. And uh, so when I did this report and learned, uh, as, as you did, about uh, the the way Jews were taught that mm-hmm. they were the special tribe and that they were God's people. Um, I had a little resistance to that as well, yep. sure. but I found that the way Jews related to that was the responsibility, the duty part, yep. not the sense of self aggrandizement or that I am a cut above. Yep. And, um, so I, I'm much more comfortable with that today. I'm pretty much of an agnostic, um, than I am with the Catholic claim mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, with a stop in purgatory, uh, a Catholic can go to heaven, and even a Protestant uh, who believes in, in the same New Testament and the same Jesus Christ uh, can only get, uh, you know, to the, the stage door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. And I, I find it all, uh, you know, a little bit uh, of a fable yeah. uh, where I, I don't know that either... Jews or Catholics have a lock on the exclusivity that they claim, but the way I find Jews relating to it is much more human than the way I see Catholics uh, relating to their claim of uh, of being the special ones. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 um, I mean, I, I, there's this debate going on about why are Jews liberal. My answer is the one that I gave just a little bit ago. I mean, if to the extent that you believe the world is broken and, and it's not self-correcting, uh, it's your job to help correct it. It gives you an agenda that 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 not only entitles you to to engage and become proactive. It is a duty to engage and become proactive. And so, while they're thirty one percent of the Forbes four hundred is Jewish, mm-hmm. but they are also thirty eight percent of Business Week's most philanthropic people. They give out of proportion to their wealth, and they pursue social causes in great numbers. I mean, I I'm politically conservative. But I have great respect for this Jewish sense of duty to make the world a better place. And they've been doing it for a very long time. Even mm-hmm. when they arrived in the United States in the 1880s and 1920s, they would set up lending associations and they would lend not just to Jews, but to other people as well. So there's a, mm-hmm. I mean, I have great admiration for this desire to make the world a better place. I might go about it differently than they would, but you have to admire how mm-hmm. much they care and how they go about it. Yeah. Well, and, and I want to dive into parts of the book here. It's 600 pages. Uh, I don't want to pretend I read the whole thing, but I, I grabbed uh, a couple of the chapters that I'm interested in. And let me start on the political level, because uh, my listeners know that I am sharply critical of the nation of Israel uh, for many of uh, its, its uh, political positions. I don't support the extreme Zionist posture, and I decry 
the treatment of the Palestinian people and uh, the way the West Bank is uh, mm -hmm. now uh, essentially under an apartheid uh, rule. That's, that's my view. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, as a political junkie and uh, someone with uh, you know, a strong interest in the political process, uh, I have deep respect for the power that they have aggregated, the way that APAC operates. Uh, I don't often agree with APAC, mm -hmm. but uh, as a political force and as an expression of uh, the collective interests of, of a certain group of Americans, uh, I, I, I have no choice but to say they really know what they're doing and they're very focused on their objectives and they achieve them, sometimes uh, bruising my politics and my values along the way. Absolutely. I mean, I, Israel didn't exist until 1947 or 48. For 2,000 years, the Jews' motto was next year in Jerusalem, and they didn't mean that was a vacation. That meant that they intended to, to reform the, the state of Israel. They had, they'd been there for 1,600 years before they were kicked out. And when they discovered that they were always put upon. You know, the Dreyfus Affair in France, I think, was kind of the, the, the thing that caused them to finally realize it just plain didn't matter. They were going to have to go there. And then, of course, the Holocaust did nothing but reinforce that. Mm -hmm. um, their roots were there. Their roots had been there since maybe 1600 B.C. Their people were there. They were just as Semitic as the Palestinians. Um, the British had said, you can go there, the Balfour Doctrine. Um, and through that, thus, it, I mean... That is their homeland. There's a reason that the Dome on the Rock has an Islamic uh, temple on top of it now, but underneath that is Solomon's Temple, the remains of mm -hmm. Solomon's Temple. So their roots are there, and APAC not only shapes our view of Israel, it, of course it shapes the politics of the United States as well. But one of the important values they've got is we, we have to keep Israel. We cannot afford to let it go. We can't afford to be diluted out of the place because our population is growing more slowly. Do I think Israel could be... Uh, could handle the situation better? Yes, there's no doubt in my mind. But mm -hmm. am I a strong supporter of Israel? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I do think the guilt in this case clearly falls on both sides. I mean, the you know, since the time of the Balfour Doctrine, the Palestinians had an opportunity to have a state. They were offered the opportunity to have a state frequently through that period of time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that the land then was run, owned by the Palestinians. It was mostly absentee landlords from Ottoman Turkey because it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. When the Jews went in there to start buying land, they bought it from the Ottomans. That's where some of the original uh, you know, farms were all settled. And in every opportunity until recently when the Palestinians had an opportunity to have a state, they said no. Mm -hmm. After the war in 67, uh, the Jews did, in fact, have a little hubris coming out of that victory. But the Arabs refused any, any offer of peace. So. And, and let, me, let me just parse this a little differently, yep. because I, I prefer to talk about Israelis and not Jews. Mm. Because when we're sure. talking in the political and military realm, uh, I don't like to inject religion, because I, I really think it's the state of Israel that I have issues with, not Jewish people or Judaism. It, it, it's, it's fair. I mean, you get into this old... If I declare I'm a Jew, that may mean I'm secular. In fact, in mm -hmm. the world... More than half the Jews, both in the United States and in Israel, are secular. They are not conservative or, or reform, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, and, Israeli, and, yes. and let's point that out mm -hmm. for Mark in Lake Zurich, Illinois, because he emailed me just the other day, and he said, Peter, I want you to do a show that uh, describes all the different political groups in Israel. And uh, I'm not asking you to do that yeah. today, yeah. Steve, sure. but... 
that is uh, something that's on the minds of one of my listeners, and uh, I certainly will address that in the future. And I think it's interesting because most people in the United States really get a very narrow sliver of the wide spectrum of political voices that exist in Israel. Absolutely. I mean, the, the state of Israel was created as much as anything by the Sabra, and the Sabra were mostly secular, uh, many of them immigrants from Poland and Central Europe, and uh, they'd lost their faith in the God that was the God of the Torah, but they were, they were dedicated Israelis, they were dedicated Jews. They think of mm-hmm. themselves Jews culturally, and they kind of reached an, an accommodation with the Orthodox Jews in Israel that gave the Orthodox Church some rights. Or, you know, you, in order to become a Jewish citizen, your mother has to be Jewish. But mm-hmm. that was a compromise. Even today, however, the bulk of the Israeli population that comes from a Jewish heritage is secular. Mm-hmm. But you also have the ultra-Orthodox, and you've got, as you say, the whole spectrum, almost yeah. as broad a spectrum there as there is here with more polarization. Steve Pease is our guest, and he's the author of this new book, The Golden Age of Jewish Achievement. And let me turn to Chapter 8, Politics and Law. And you start off with Dianne Feinstein, the senior senator from California. And my listeners know I have a lot of differences with her politically. Mm -hmm. But I also have deep respect for uh, her intellect and her tenacity. And one of my favorite quotes from her uh, is a few years ago, the San Francisco Chronicle uh, responded to some cl- complaints, uh, some complaints from former staffers, mm-hmm. who said that she's ruthless and drives you crazy. And uh, she told the Chronicle reporter, "I don't get ulcers; I give them." <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, you know. And but and the other interesting thing about her is that the public image of her is not that tough, and yet underneath she is that tough i mean i lived in san francisco during the jonestown massacre mm-hmm. and during the assassination of uh, what's his name the Moscone. yeah um and she stepped into all of that and handled it remarkably well she ran the city very well she was terrific as a politician and she's been in the senate now for a very long time mm-hmm. she always presents herself as hearing both sides of the argument but she's always a very strong democrat i mean when the when the day is done she's going to vote Democratic on almost every issue. Oh, boy. I'm not with almost you there, every Steve. Issue. <laughs> uh, Bush tax cuts, uh, mm-hmm. the war in Iraq, mm-hmm. uh, the Patriot Act. <laughs> she, had, she, had a good, she had a lot of Democrat colleagues on, on those you know, issues. Okay, so the current Jewish members of the U.S. Senate, Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein, both from California, Lautenberg of New Jersey, Levin of Michigan, Arlen Specter, and we're speaking on the day of his primary, where Absolutely. I hope uh, his uh, retirement is, is announced. <laughs> you, know, you and I share that. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ron Wyden of Oregon, Russ Feingold, one of my favorites in the Senate from yeah. Wisconsin, also Herb Cole. So Wisconsin and California are the states that have two Jewish senators. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, ours are both female. Yeah. Lieberman of Connecticut, uh, and and I met him one time. He's much smaller than you'd think. That's my sense, yeah. Yeah, I, I was in an elevator with him, and I, su- I was surprised. I'm only 5'11", but I was towering over this yeah, guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was, a, I think it was Bronfen of the Seagram's family, the Bronfens. Mm-hmm. Bronfen was quoted as saying he knew anti-Semitism in the United States was coming down substantially. Right. When Gore lost and nobody blamed Lieberman. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's, well... I blame the Supreme Court on that one. <laughs> and uh, Minnesota has replaced Norm Coleman with Al Franken. That's right. Uh, so they, they're maintaining a, a that. A one for one. Yeah, yeah. 
so then in the House, uh, 6%, is that right? Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a little lower. I mean, the Senate at the time that I wrote that, that particular Congress, I think was either 11 or 12%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Congress is 6%. Yeah. And uh, there, there are some very powerful ones, and I, I, I won't name all of them on the list here, but Berman of California, Bar- Barney Frank of Massachusetts, uh, the late Tom Lantos, mm-hmm. a man I tangled with many times, mm-hmm. but uh, again, had great respect for him. Yep. He was a Holocaust survivor. Sure, he was Hungarian. Uh, Jan Schakowsky of Illinois, Brad Sherman of California, Anthony Weiner. I saw him in Washington. He spoke last week at a rally I attended. And he is a very imposing, hmm. very bright man. Um, let's see who else here. Rahm Emanuel, now the Absolutely. White House Chief of Staff. Um, I think Waxman's on that list someplace. Yep, Henry Waxman. And a former, Senate, uh, former Congressman uh, Wexler of Florida, yep. quite a progressive, who's now unfortunately a lobbyist. Hmm. And uh, you have Bernie Sanders down. We need to move him to the Senate list, uh, independent from Vermont hmm. and uh, a great American. So uh, what, what is the landscape in terms of uh, the, the development? Because it, it seems to me that if you go back 20 years, mm-hmm. most uh, Jewish electeds came from strong Jewish centers, mm-hmm. population centers. But as we see here in California uh, with two female Jewish senators, uh, their, their religious and cultural background is not an issue. Yeah, no, I, I, think it, I think it's less and less an issue. Um, the other day we were talking about that with respect to the Supreme Court and what's going on with Kagan. And I said, you know, I think the United States in some ways kind of crossed that Rubicon when John Kennedy was elected. Mm-hmm. I can remember growing up, you know, do you want to have a Catholic as a president? You know, he's going to be loyal to the to the to Rome the Pope, and all this yeah. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And when he was elected and it never happened, I think all of a sudden we began to lose our concern about that sort of thing. And in the intervening years, we've become more and more a secular nation. We've kind of followed Europe in this kind of secular push. So less and less does it seem to matter whether you're Jewish or Catholic or whatever. You know, we, we, we poor Protestants don't have anybody or won't have anybody on the Supreme Court here pretty quick. <laughs> but I don't think most Protestants care. You know, it's just not that big an issue. People don't seem to behave as though their religion is what's guiding every decision that they make anymore. I agree. Uh, that said, I just can't resist adding that I worry a little bit about those extreme Catholics on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I, and I don't think they're taking orders from Rome. Uh, I just think they're too, uh, too literal. Uh, let's have a little fun here as we wrap up, because uh, the arts are filled with, uh, with Jews in the United States and elsewhere, and in particular, comedians. Oh. And have you been able to put your finger on why the Borscht Belt, uh, you know, was the, 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 the site of a, a lot of great comics who emerged in the United States? Mm. But why, why are people like Jack Benny or, uh, you know, more contemporary John Stewart uh, such strong uh, comedic forces? Well, you know, uh, the, the answer that I've had from my Jewish friends, for which I've never seen a good written answer, is pathos. You know, that, that life was hard, life was difficult, it was a challenge, and it was a way to kind of cope with all that hardship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- th- they did it magnificently. One of my favorite Jewish jokes concerns a, a woman walking on the beach with her son, and this big wave takes the son away, and the woman looks up at God and she just goes nuts. She screams, she yells, she shouts, this is not right, it's not fair. Oh, how could you do this to me? A half an hour later, God relents. The young boy lands on the sand, smile on his face, he looks beautiful. He looks up at his mom, he's smiling, she looks down, she looks up at the heaven, 
Oh, but he had a hat. <laughs> Jewish humor I find just absolutely delightful. It's fun. And I guess it does come out of adversity, but um, it, it, there also seems to be, and maybe it is the, the Shabbat uh, celebrations where families get together. You know, almost every Jewish holiday is a family celebration. Well, and it's, you... often a, it's often a celebration to talk about an event in history and how it relates to today, mm-hmm. the lessons to be learned. Well, but I can imagine Woody Allen, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know the details <laughs> yeah. of, of his family life, but uh, imagine him as a teenager. Oh, and, you know, he's he's trying to pass the time on these lengthy, yeah, you know, for, yeah. enforced family yeah. engagements. Yeah, he, he may not have wanted the education very much, so he entertained everybody. <laughs> exactly. You know, you know, one of the ones in, in the arts that's fascinating is in the visual arts, in, in, in you know, painting and drawing, mm-hmm. where this the Golden Age phenomenon is only the last 200 years. And you look at the ascendancy of Jewish visual artists from only one of a, a large group, say, from 1800 to 1850, today, probably 20 to 25% of the great Western visual artists are Jewish. They have just arrived on that secular domain, mm-hmm. and the performance is just amazing. Yeah. You know, Kennedy Center Honors, you know, north of 25%. These are our best performing artists. Mm-hmm. Symphony conductors in all the major U.S. symphonies, they've held that baton 33% of the time. So uh, that's part of the reason the book is, look at the range of this performance. From yeah. Physics to... Symphony Conductors. So Stephen Pease, P-E-A-S-E. The book is The Golden Age of Jewish Achievement. I've got a soft cover edition that is out from uh, Duke Galan Press. Ducalian, Ducalian. Ducalian, thank you, in mm-hmm. Sonoma, California. And people can find this on Amazon? Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, the book has its own website, GoldenAgeOfJewishAchievement.com. Uh, and it's getting distributed widely. I've got a Jonathan David Publishers does similar books, and in the last week or so they've picked up the distribution rights including in Israel. So uh, mm-hmm. we're going to have it available in hard copy form in the bookstores as well. Great. Steve, real pleasure to meet you. Enjoy talking with you today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me an email, peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails